Unleavened Bread Ministries presents From your hands, your feet, your side Unleavened Bread Bible Studies with David Eels Can quench my thirsting soul Pure as water made me whole Let your streams of mercy flow Oh Jesus, I trust in you Greetings, saints. Many blessings to you, in Jesus' name. Thank you, Father, for being with us today and blessing us mightily and anointing me to share this good message with the people of God. And, uh, Lord, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for all you're doing for your people. Amen. All right, I'm going to continue with Restoration for the Saints, uh, number 10. In this first revelation, which we're going to reiterate, was the angel messenger's commands to us, and um, our messages to us from the Lord on eight nineteen twenty two. The uh, angel Baruch gave this message for us on the eighth day anointing celebration. Your enemy has been defeated this night and has been placed under your feet. That means, of course, under our authority. The power of your praise and worship to our God and your Savior Jesus has gone down to the very foundations of hell and has shaken it to its core. And they have risen to the throne room of our great God and uh, were incorporated with the praises of your brethren, the saints of heaven around his throne. Do not go back to the old ways. Let me explain this. He told us basically what the old ways were. He, he was speaking of a very highly praising the Lord for all of his goodness and proclaiming his promises. In other words, confessing our salvation from our enemies as in Psalm 149, in praise, in worship. So that we've been being more radical about praising and worshiping and thanking God, and this, the uh, fruit of it is awesome. He went on to say, Be very vigilant not to fall backwards and lose the ground you've taken back from the enemy tonight, or he will penetrate your ranks once more. Well, truly, you know, the enemy sent curses towards us, and God has knocked them down, every last one of them, through praise and thanks to the Lord. Continue to walk in the way and uh, the rededication of yourselves in faithfulness to Jesus, your Master and Savior. You have put the enemy to flight this night. Do not cease from pursuing him and overtaking him. Do not give him time to regroup by relenting in the fight. Amen. Our great general and your Savior Jesus is ordering his soldier bride to report for duty. The training for the greatest revival ever witnessed by mankind is now beginning. Don't fail to show up. And Eve said, uh, in other words, don't go AWOL, absent without leave. <laughs> We've been chosen or drafted to report for basic training at Fort Revival. 
The Lord will be our strength and faithful to get us all in shape. Amen. And she went on to say, I understood that they were all using military terms and imagery uh, in order to stress the revelation of a soldier bride to us so that we can begin viewing ourselves in this way because the battle comes before the wedding. So we need to view the bride as the, as a warrior at the man-child side fighting with the angels and uh, not so much as the dainty, demure, passive figure in her wedding garments, which is true. And the angel Shemuel said, uh, I have really enjoyed praising, worshiping, and lifting up our God and his son, our great general and king of all kings, with you tonight. Many of the angels have joined in celebrating this event with you. I concur with Baruch's report. To you all, do not fall back. You all have orders to press forward. Also, remember to never leave your fellow soldiers or brethren behind, struggling to keep up or wounded on the battlefield. Uh, A platoon of soldiers is only as strong as its weakest member. Give of your time and give sacrificially in order to uphold one another in daily training and on the battlefield. Do not let any fall through the cracks. And when the Holy Spirit of God places someone on your heart, get in touch with them as soon as possible. Don't hesitate to communicate with uh, one another because the enemy lurks and hides where the communications have broken down. Amen. Don't forget to deploy me abroad to continue fighting the enemies of UBM and all God's elect, both foreign and domestic. This is my charge concerning UBM and all that pertains to her. Okay. So Eve reported this. um, A hand in the clouds. During the morning prayer meeting, Michael reported looking out of his window and seeing a giant hand with a cross behind it. Uh, It was made of clouds. He said it was moving north. And uh, we believe that this represents the hand of God leading us to defeat the northern army. And then Debbie Fenske spoke up and shared this testimony. She said, for about three days from this past Saturday and on through our Monday night meeting, when I would be in prayer or even just be thinking or meditating on things of the Spirit, I kept being shown a large hand. It was very large, but it did not have a regular or normal appearance of a hand. It was a fat hand. The fingers and thumb were very rounded and fat, and I knew that this was representing the Father's hand. In other words, it was a large hand, right? And Debbie gave this word. Um, we called it, You Are In My Hand, eight twenty four twenty two. In Monday night's meeting, I heard Father say one thing. I want to show you what is in my hand. And after the meeting and through today, More so, as he led me to start listening and writing, Father spoke to us, Receive by faith all that is in my hand, which I choose to give to you 
out of my faithfulness to you because of your steadfast faithfulness to me. You have to know without doubting that all these things that are here in my hand are yours. I give them to you. Healing is um, is in any hand. Receive it. It is yours. Much provision and much favor. It's in my hand, ready to be poured out upon you at your every need. Uh, boy, I tell you, he has certainly been doing that. I mean, every curse that has been sent is being struck down. Mighty miracles are happening to undo the, what the wicked have done. And, by the way, they are throwing back the bombs into the enemy camp. So, as they said, Mercy and grace is ever flowing like a river washing over you with my Holy Spirit anointing. Yes, my anointing uh, ever flows to you from my hand. Stay in the flow. Authority and power is in my hand. I give it all to you as you are led to go forth as my ambassadors, instituting with power and authority my will and my way. You are in my hand. Nothing can harm you there. You are mine. And in the safety and security of my hand, you can do all I have called you to do, all that I have chosen you for to be my presence on the earth. The very light that shines forth from you is from my very hand. I am the light of the world that yet will shine forth from you evermore brightly. You are not on your own, yet on your own, you constant, your constant choice must always be to be in me, remaining in me, abiding in me, knowing that my hand is not slack in providing your every need and performing every, my every promise. My hand holds you, and my hand covers you, and my hand lifts you up. Yes, I am who is your all in all, covers and upholds, leads and directs, love and sustains you with all of my heart uh, by my righteous right hand. Thank you, Father. You are valiant in faithfulness towards your faithful people in all things. Amen. And I, I add Isaiah 53 and 1. It says, Who hath... Who hath believed our message? To whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? We know that Jesus is the arm of the Lord. Um, but his seed in the earth is his hand. Okay. Isaiah 53 and 10 says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. And when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, in other words, when he died, he shall see his seed. What is his seed? It is the word of God manifested in his people. Right? He shall prolong his days. That means in his seed. He's going to prolong his days. He died, but he's prolonging his days in his seed. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Well, as we can see, his hand is his seed through whom he will do his works. Jesus was the arm of the Lord, and we are his extension in the earth. Amen. 
Oh, thank you, Father. In Psalm 118, 15 and 16, the sound of joyful shouting and salvation in the tents of the righteous. Yes, <laughs> we're doing it. <laughs> the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Yes, His right hand is doing valiantly and doing wonderful miracles among us. Hallelujah. Miracles, deliverance, provisions, everything. Uh, and this one we called, Give Up the Pride of Life to See How Great Our God Is. This was given to Claire Pinar, 8622. I dreamed there was a big brick wall. This wall represents, I believe, separation from God and each other and also hinders our spiritual discernment. In the mortar, she said, that held the bricks together, there was a thin silver snake slithering. She said, I asked the Lord about the snake and he spoke to me saying, the snake is the pride of life and must be let and must be we must lay it down. So I asked him for a verse and received First uh, Peter 5, 6, and 7 in my spirit. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety upon him, because he careth for you. Well, yes, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Amen. So he doesn't want us to be proud in worship and in praise to him. He wants us to just turn loose and give him what's in our heart, right? I agreed that it shouldn't be there, and when I went to pick it out of the cement grooves, the brick wall exploded into nothingness and revealed the brightest light. Get, in other words, get that snake out of the bricks, right? Well, this represents moving the division so that we can have the spiritual discernment of the light. I was then suspended in midair, and I heard the angels singing to God, How great thou art! <laughs> Amen. Represents, of course, being caught up to heavenly places to hear the angels. Amen. Then I woke up. And Marie Kelton got this on 8.12. A bride receives authority over her enemies. Amen. Well, I believe Marie is being used to represent the bride in this revelation. And she said, During the meeting, I had an open vision of the Lord, and he put a gold necklace around my neck with a key on it. And I believe that this is representing the key of David, which the Lord gave to the bride church of Philadelphia. Right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, we teach the bride to bind and loose. That's what keys do. Right? Bind and loose. Take authority. Just exactly what the angel said to do. Right? Revelation 3, 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, that's the church of brotherly love, which, by the way, we've been prophesied to be that. 
And these things saith he that is holy, and he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and none shall shut, and that shutteth, and none openeth. Amen. That's the binding and loosing authority that God has given to his saints. Then he put another gold necklace around my neck with a heart on it. So that reminded her of Psalm song uh, 4 and 9. Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my bride. Thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes, with one chain of thy neck. So the bride has captured the heart of Jesus, and he loves her beauty of spirit, and he will give gifts to her, as he has been doing. <laughs> uh, okay, and this was from Belinda back in 2012. Um, the bride's authority in these dark medieval days. She said, I was, I dreamed I was living back in the medieval days which is, of course, a period of deterioration, a tumultuous period, uh, light versus darkness, etc. Well, these verses are the best description of the wicked who have fought against us in these dark medieval-like days. Isaiah 5 and 20 through 23. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil that put darkness for light and light for darkness. You know, everything that the faction actually was doing and did do, uh, they accused us of. That's the way of those that spirit, that uh, slanderous spirit. That put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink. Well, this is obviously talking about uh, self-delusion. You know, people who drink what they want because they get a high on it. <laughs> they get some kind of gratification from it. Um, become diluted that justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. And that's exactly what they have done. Second Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Um, but know this, that in the last days grievous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of self, lovers of money, Boastful, haughty, railers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, implacable, slanderers, without self-control, fierce, no lovers of good, traitors, headstrong, puffed up, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding a form of godliness but having denied the power thereof. From these also turn away. For of these are they that creep into houses and take captive silly women laden with sins, led away by divers lusts, 
ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And that's what they do. They creep into houses. When they are brought out into the light, they run. They're like cockroaches. The invasion of witchcraft, faction, and Jezebel into the churches and the government has bred a people who have no conscience whatsoever. And uh, we see that in these people. This is, we see this, this revelation of 2 Timothy 3 uh, more clearly now than ever before. It's amazing. I was living in a castle high on a hill. Well, I believe this is probably Mount Zion, and that's for the bride, a place of safety and provision for God's people from the evil darkness that is increasing over the earth. I stood gazing out the tower window. That's Micah 4 and 8 is what came to us. Uh, And thou, O tower of the flock, the hill of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come. Yea, the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. She went on to say, I saw that it was a beautiful late summer morning and time to spiritually prepare before the beginning of the tribulation is quickly running out, she said. I noticed from my vantage point in the tower the increasing evil soon to be unleashed upon the earth. God's people, she says, who are spiritually preparing now will have a vantage point and a place to escape, which is abiding in Jesus Christ. And she gave Luke twenty one thirty six. But watch ye at every season making supplication that you may prevail to escape all these things and shall come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. Amen. Even though the season was late, there were still some beautiful flowers in the meadow beyond the castle. So I decided to take my morning walk down to the meadow and pick the flowers for my husband, the the king's table. That's Jesus' table, right? The season is late, you know, but um, there are still some flowers, (laughs) beautiful saints uh, beyond the castle to be brought into Zion, the bride, and also uh, the walk of the bride will be a beautiful, sweet fragrance to the king. Amen. And she gave Proverbs 2 and 20. Uh, through 14, excuse me, uh, through uh, 21, that thou mayest walk in the way of good men and keep the paths of the righteous. For the upright shall dwell in the land and the perfect shall remain in it. Okay, that means everybody else has got to go. And Matthew 7 and 13 and 14 says, Enter ye in by the narrow gate, For wide is the gate, we'll come back to the wide gate here, and broad is the way, and the broad way, that leadeth unto destruction, and many are they that enter in thereby. For narrow is the gate, and straightened the way that leadeth unto life, and few are they that find it. It is so true. A lot of people start out with this, but not nearly as many end up with this. 
As I was walking along towards the meadow, I was singing a love song to my husband, the king. Of course, that's Jesus. Psalm 92 and 1 um, on down, it says, It is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High, to show forth thy loving kindness in the morning and thy faithfulness every night with an instrument of ten strings and with the psaltery and with a solemn sound upon the harp. For thou, Lord, hast made me glad through thy work. I will triumph in the works of thy hands. Triumph means to celebrate the victory, right? That's what we do. We celebrate the victory. And also 147 and 1 says, Praise ye the Lord, for it is good to sing praises unto our God, for it is pleasant and praise is comely. So when I reached the spot where the flowers were growing, I bent down to pick the flowers, and I suddenly sensed a dark presence. Well, we know that uh, Satan opposes those who are bringing the saints to Zion uh, the most. And just as I looked up, I saw a dark rider on a black horse. Uh, Well, this represents evil spirit power being sent from Satan. The horse was riding across the meadow towards me. I instantly knew this rider was not from my kingdom because everyone in my kingdom wore white robes. In other words, righteous acts of the saints, right? And uh, this one only rode upon, and our people only rode upon white horses, harnessed, obedient flesh, I believe is what's being talked about here. The horses represents our, our body being in submission to us, the spiritual man. And 1 Peter 1.13, Wherefore, girding up the loins of your mind, be sober and set your hope perfectly on the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As children of obedience, not fashioning yourselves according to your former lusts in the time of your ignorance, but like as he who called you is holy, be ye yourselves also holy in all manner of living. Because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father, who without respect of person judges according to each man's work, pass the time of your sojourning in fear, knowing that you were redeemed not with corruptible things, with silver or gold, from your vain manner of life handed down from your fathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb without spot, even the blood of Christ. Amen, amen. And when the dark rider got within several feet of me, I commanded him to stop. I said, quote, You are not of my kingdom, and you have no authority here, and I command you in the name of my Lord to go back to your kingdom. Unquote. Well, Ephesians 6.10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. 
put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against the powers and against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Wherefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and withal taking up the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And also Colossians 2 and 10, And in him ye were made full, who is the head of all principality and power. Amen. When we speak for Jesus, the devil has to move. The dark rider gave me an ugly sneer and said, I don't take orders from a woman. And I said, I'm no ordinary woman. I'm the wife of the king, that's Jesus, and I do have authority to tell you to leave. As soon as I spoke those words, I was immediately standing there in full battle armor. I reached down and took my sword which is the Word of God, out of its sheath and with all my strength. I threw my sword and it hit the evil rider right in the heart. The sword went all the way through the dark rider and he and his horse burst into flames. Amen. We have authority. They can't withstand our sword. Swing your sword, saints. Don't sit on it. Amen. Luke 10 and 19 says, Behold, I've given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall in any wise hurt you. Nevertheless, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So, we know that men and women who have confessed their sins and believed the word are guiltless before God and have his full authority over the forces of darkness. Isaiah 54 and 17 says, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their righteousness, which is of me, saith the Lord. Then she went on to say, Suddenly from the direction of the castle I saw my husband, the king, that's Jesus, riding across the meadow on his beautiful white stallion, which represents holiness and purity. And when my husband approached me, he reached down and scooped me up and put me on the back of his horse which I believe probably talks about abiding in Jesus Christ and trusting in His strength, right? I put my arms around His chest, and we rode back to the castle together. 
one in Christ Jesus, she puts in parentheses. And as we were riding along, my husband, the king, said, Well done, my dear wife. And I said, Oh, t'was nothing, my dear husband. You taught me well. <laughs> yes. John uh, 15, uh, 4 on. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, so neither can ye except you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same beareth much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And they gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatsoever you will and it shall be done unto you. So, saints, with the authority of this word from God in the dream, uh, he sent uh, to destroy and cast down the forces of darkness that oppose you, bringing in the harvest. Tell them, I command you in the name of my Lord to go back to your kingdom. Amen? You have authority to stop them. You have authority to bind and loose on the earth. So here's one uh, Claire Pinar had, 8-9-22. We call it one of Satan's princes evicted from his throne. Mm-hmm. I think we'll find out who this is. I had a quick flash vision, and I saw a very high authority demon leave his throne. He pulled at his head in torment, and his eyes flashed red. He had a strange Greek-looking crown on his head, and he was very angry. I looked closely, and it seemed it was something I had said that caused him to be frightfully angry and no longer on his throne. Well, as we give the commands to the king of Babylon and his principality, they will be cast down as Cyrus Trump comes through the door. On a local UBM level, the angel, Baruch, said to us after our eighth-day anointing meeting, your enemy has been defeated this night and has been placed under your feet. So we consider this both enemies of the, the government and enemies of in the church, or not in the church, but of the church, right? The power of your praise and worship to our God and to your Savior, Jesus, has gone down to the very foundations of hell and has shaken it to its core. And they have risen to the throne of room of our great God and were incorporated with the praises of your brethren, the saints of heaven, around his throne. Amen. So keep on praising, folks, because like Psalm 149 says, this is how we bind their kings and their leadership. And uh, in this vision, it looked like he was either in a courtroom or a throne room, and he was told to evacuate or leave. Well, we know Zechariah 3, 
1 and 2 says, And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to be his adversary. And the Lord said unto Satan, Jehovah rebuke thee, O Satan. Yea, the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Amen. I saw the finger of our Lord pointing from some white robes on a bigger throne, but it was me speaking. And that was the end of the dream. So we speak the word of the Lord. And both the angels and the demons obey him. Amen. She said, I asked for a word by faith at random and received Habakkuk 3.14, which is a confirmation of the principality's head being in agony because of the sword of the word that is thrown at it when we agree with what the Lord says in his word. Habakkuk 3 and 14, Thou didst pierce with his own staves the head of his warriors. They came as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. Amen. Our good confession is all-powerful. It is the sword of the Spirit. And Claire also had this, Only the bride is left standing. Three of four will fall away. I dreamed I was on a ten-day tour of America. Ten days refers to the fullness of time. Uh, I was uh, part of an elect group of women who went to a very high-end lodge to receive training. And Rion, her husband, said, Sounds like Esther and the rest getting trained for the king. Amen. I was there in a flash without ever boarding an airplane or taking a taxi. I was at the lodge within with three other women. They all looked much better suited and prepared than I was for this training. And Rion said, uh, His power is made perfect in weakness, and there is only one bride, one undefiled, and the Lord looks on the inside. Amen. I got a glimpse of the man who was in charge of us in the training as I was taken aback by his state of perfection. Well, I believe that's probably Jesus in the man-child is coming to choose his bride just as he did in the Gospels. Jesus went forth and said, Hey, you, you and you, come follow me, right? And those people ended up being the bride, according to John. So everything was... Just perfect, she said. He had on a bright blue T-shirt, and he had blue twinkling eyes that took my breath away. He said to me, I choose you. So that was one out of the four, right? I thought this was a mistake, so I said, let's see. Do you want to go for a run with me? <laughs> if I can keep up with you, then you can choose me. He said, sure. So it's true. We have to walk with Jesus, right? To be with him in the end. 
He said, sure. I went to get dressed for the run. And I believe this represents those who win the race. I first put on a pair of red uh, biker leggings, but these showed too much leg. And then I put on a pair of gray shorts, and again, they showed too much leg. And then I put on a pair of multicolored pants that had many white geometric shapes in between all the colors. And Rion said, this is like Joseph's coat of many colors, representing the chosen or the elect that don't live by the flesh but by faith, and they can run with the Lord and not grow weary. Amen. And the multicolored represents the different facets of the light, right? Jesus is the light of the world, and that there's many facets to that light, right? Like a prism. I went for a run and kept up with this man whose name was Bobby. This is a nickname for a police officer. <laughs> the righteous one is coming to enforce the law of liberty and set the captives free in his uh, man-child reformers. Amen. I agree with that. One by one, the other three girls either dropped out or were disqualified from the training. One girl never received her visa on time, even though she was so diligent and so perfectly suited to this training. And then Rion said, uh, representing a third of the stars falling out of the sky, right? Unfortunately, she was deported, uh, kind of like an illegal alien. You know what an alien is, somebody that doesn't belong with your group, right? <laughs> the other one was uh, too lazy, and she was sent away, even though Bobby had spent a considerable amount of time with her, coaxing and encouraging her. And the third one was distracted and not doing the activities and seemed to be paying attention to another man, not to Bobby. That's representing those with idols who are harlots, right? Many people are worshiping their preacher more than they are worshiping the Lord and respect his words more than they respect the Lord's word. She was still there, but I knew it would be me left there with Bobby for the rest of the training. And Rion said, like the parable of the sower, three out of the four seeds did not make it. They all thought that they'd be at the training for about three or four years, but I knew it was only going to be a quick ten-day event. Hmm. So, uh, representing that uh, all those who didn't make it thought that they would have a lot more time than they did instead of redeeming the time because the days are short. Amen. I also knew Bobby and I were going to be inseparable. Yes, this is true. Rion said, Amen. What a friend we have in Jesus. Yes. I received the following scripture by faith at random for this dream. Habakkuk 2 and 1. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will look forth to see what he will speak with me 
and what I shall answer concerning my complaint. And uh, Proverbs uh, 31, 6 and 7. Give strong drink to him that is ready to perish, and wine unto the bitter in soul. Let him drink and forget his poverty, and remember his misery no more. Well, that's true, but he's getting ready to perish. <laughs> yeah. So, and this was given to Matt Ezel, 831.22, The Bride Remnant. I wanted to share this dream I had. I believe it's an encouragement to the body and possibly a bit of a warning. I dreamed that everyone at UBM was gathered together for a wedding. Woohoo! Praise the Lord. We were all dressed in white clothes. Yes, the Lord has definitely been working on this and, and showing great grace as we worship and praise Him for the victory. Before the wedding, before the wedding, Michael was leading the worship in a previous setting in some city. There were many people there for worship, maybe close to a hundred or more people. Well, this is interesting because it kind of happened out that way. Michael has been leading worship to our larger crowd, joining us by YouTube on Fridays. So the wedding is close because he said this is just before the wedding, right? The wedding is close. And the wedding feast, of course, is the seven days of the tribulation when the man-child goes forth to teach the bride and to share the the uh, bread and the wine, right? Like Jesus said. So the wedding feast is for those seven days, the tribulation. Jesus and the man-child feeds the bread and the wine of life to those invited to the wedding. Amen. And when it came time for the wedding, however, there was just a few of us there, maybe about 20. We were in a secluded country neighborhood in a few houses in a cul-de-sac-like environment. Well, the bride is much smaller than the church that we minister to, but these will in turn feed the church. They will feed the church the words of life, just like Jesus' first fruits disciples did. They fed the church who came out of the world and religion. Church is the called out ones, right? And so those that came out of that dead apostate religion in Jesus' day and followed him was the church. I felt like uh, Luke 10 and 2 is in accordance with this dream. And he was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Well, that's as a type, Jesus raised up his first fruits disciples that John the Baptist called the bride to go to a much larger church. All right? Amen. And that's what will happen. Because the things that have been are the things that shall be, and the things that have been done are the things that shall be done. There's no new thing under the sun. Let me say, Isaiah foretold of Zion's redemption through the man-child. You can stay within Isaiah and see the whole story. 
Isaiah 59 and 20 says, And a Redeemer will come to Zion. That's where he's coming first. The Lord will come first to the David man-child and the bride who are Zion. And unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. Now Jacob, who was named Israel, is a type of the church. Those in the church who turn away from sin are the bride. How do we know what sin is? We go by the word. Okay, Isaiah 46 and 13. I bring near my righteousness. It shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry. I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Notice, he's going to put salvation first in Zion, and it's for Israel. It's for the church. Just like Jesus spent so much time with those first fruits disciples that were called the bride by John the Baptist so that they could go out and totally and perfectly represent him to the larger church. Mm-hmm. Isaiah 41 and 27, I am the first that saith unto Zion, Behold, behold them. And I will give to Jerusalem one that bringeth good tidings. Well, we know that Jesus in the man-child body of reformers will bring the good news to the bride. Amen. And Isaiah 40 and 9 says, O thou that tellest good tidings to Zion, get thee up on a high mountain. That's Mount Zion, and this represents closeness to God, separation from the earth, etc. O thou that tellest good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord will come as a mighty one. That's the man-child body right there. And his arm, Jesus, will rule for him. He is the arm of the Lord, right? Jesus will rule. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. So the Lord will reward the bride and judge the Judas Edomites. As he came with his blood-stained garment from Edom, right? And 11 says, He will feed his flock like a shepherd. In other words, he will lead them through their wilderness. He will gather the lambs in his arm and carry them in his bosom and will gently lead those that have their young. Amen. Jesus is the good shepherd. Isaiah 52 and 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings. So, I mean, the good tidings have to come from the mountains, the high places of God, right? That publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. So he is our sovereign God. We should believe in the sovereignty of God. Because then we know who we're dealing with, right? 
The voice of thy watchmen, they lift up the voice. Together do they sing. For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord returneth to Zion. In other words, the leadership, the true leadership, are going to be in one accord. Mm-hmm. Isaiah 62.11 says, Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the earth, Say ye to the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy salvation cometh. The Lord is coming to save Zion. And I mean save her from her enemies and save her from her old life. And it goes on to say, Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. So Jesus is coming to judge the enemies of the bride and to manifest her salvation. And Isaiah 51.11 says, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion. Ransomed is bought and taken. It's uh, the people who were held captive and made free because the ransom was paid by the Lord himself, right? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. Joy is mentioned so many times about the bride in Isaiah coming to that maturity and receiving that election, right? They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Yep, all the sorrow they went through by the crucifixion of the wicked around them is gone. The man-child Zerubbabel, with the fruits out of Babylonian religious captivity, will return to rebuild the kingdom as in Haggai. And Zerubbabel means born from Babylon. He was the first fruits man-child to come out of Babylon. In Isaiah 35 and 8, And a highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. Holiness means separation or sanctification unto God. Separation from the worldly, the wicked, the sin, the devil, etc. unto God. The way of holiness. That highway is called the way of holiness. The highway that leads to what? Zion. If you don't like holiness, you don't want to be in Zion. You can't be there. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for the redeemed. The wayfaring men. That's men on the broad road. That's what that means. Yea, fools shall not err therein. They don't go there because they don't like holiness. They don't want to be separated from the world and their sins, so therefore they hold to it and defend it and justify themselves. Amen. Verse 9, No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go up thereon. They shall not be found there. So the faction who are predators of God's people and devour them for the beast, like the dragon, right, um, they're not going to be found on that highway. 
But, uh, and that, that is the safest place to be, by the way. If you get on that highway, they don't go there. You're safe. So those who are not being cleansed of their beastly flesh abhor this way of holiness. It goes on to say, but the redeemed shall walk there. And Isaiah 62 and one says, For Zion's sake will I not will I not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until her righteousness go forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burneth. So Jesus is determined to sanctify his bride. Amen. He knows who she is. Isaiah 4 and 4 says, When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of justice and the spirit of burning. Yes, the wicked couldn't stand the the burning uh, of the way of Zion. So this is not only the removal of sin from the bride, but also the tares are being removed from the wheat by faction. Faction is are demons that separate people who will not cease from their sins. Okay, God uses faction. He uses these demons. He's turning people over to these demons to separate them from the body because they will not repent. The burning is the removal of the wood, hay, and stubble of the bride's life, right? A spirit of burning. Amen. And the Lord will create over the whole habitation of Mount Zion and over her assemblies, because around the world there are assemblies of God's people that the wicked abhor and are coming out of because faction drives them out. <laughs> Yeah, a cloud of smoke and a smoke by day and a shining of a flaming fire by night for over all the glory shall be spread a covering. So this was a covering over the people of God who had gone through the Red Sea and seen their old man put to death. Yeah, this is the anointing and the protection of the bride to enter tribulation with Moses the man-child, who with Joshua and Caleb and families were preserved through the wilderness. But those who believed the bad report were not. They died in the wilderness. In verse 6, And there shall be a pavilion for a shade in the daytime from the heat. And from and for a refuge and for a covert from storm and from rain. So the bride will be at rest in the wilderness tribulation because she's already gone through her tribulation. The tribulation is the tribulation of the church. They too have to be matured and perfected. Right? And Isaiah 52 and 1 says, Awake, awake, and put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments. Put on the works of Jesus, is what he's saying, right? Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Right? 
beautiful garments, the garments of Jesus, the righteous acts of the saints. O Jerusalem, the holy city, from henceforth there shall, what? No more come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. That's happening now. There are people who believe they're a part of us, and they are not. Because uh, they are uncircumcised and unclean. So we see this, this that uh, no more will the factious Judases test the people of the bride, for she hath overcome them. Amen. It's a crucifixion, but she hath overcome them. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise, sit on thy throne, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bonds of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So the bride will be the first fruits to come out of religious captivity, right? And of course, at the head, the head of the bride, by the way, was David, Jerusalem, David, and that he represents the man child. Amen. Isaiah 60 and 14. And the sons of them that afflicted thee, the sons of the faction who survived when their fathers were destroyed. You understand that that's what's going to happen by all the word of God and all the revelations we've received. So those that are survived there who are elect but will repent and turn to the Lord, we give praise and thanks to God. Shall come bending unto thee, and all they that despised thee shall bow themselves down at the soles of thy feet, and they shall call thee the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Yes, God will force this. And Isaiah 61 and 3, as you know, Isaiah 61 is the man-child, Jesus' first message. It began the man-child's ministry. Yes, he uh, had overcome in his wilderness and was prepared to bring the people there, just like Moses. So, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them a garland for ashes. See, this is the comforting and the blessing of the bride after going through a great crucifixion at the hands of the wicked. To give unto them a garland for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. We've been given this garment of praise and the angels are saying, hold on to it, don't lose it, because in Psalm 149, it's what destroyed the enemies. They sent Judah first. Judah means praise. Amen. Praise. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Yes, thank you, Lord God. Isaiah 51 and 16. I have put my words in thy mouth. 
and have covered thee in the shadow of my hand. There it is. That I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth and say unto Zion, Thou art my people. What is this planting the heavens? How does he use them to plant the heavens? Well, like the first fruits disciples who followed the man-child Jesus, they will go forth to sow the seed of the kingdom that brings God's people to heavenly places in Christ. Amen? Wow, how awesome this revelation is. Well, okay. I went a little bit over it, but that's okay. It was well worth it. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for the mighty victory you have given unto us. Amen. Glory be to God. Thank you, Lord. So keep on praising him, saints, and uh, confess who he is and what he has done while you're at it. In Jesus' name. All right. God bless you. Michael Ayer is going to come now. We ask you to bless him and bless the brethren with him. Um, to have a, a wonderful time in the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you, Brother David, and God bless you. Hello, saints. It's good to be back with you again. Let's go to the Lord. Father, in the name of Jesus, I want to thank you and I praise you for all the healings and deliverances and uh, repairs that you have made just in the last little bit. It is so awesome, Father, to see your power at work in your people, Father. Now I ask and I pray, Lord, that you be with me today. Anoint me to make this, the Father and his family, a uh, revelation to many people out there. And I thank you for E.W. Kenyon that uh, gave this many years ago. And I hope and I pray, Lord, that, you would, that it would be a blessing to the folks out there in Jesus' name. Well, that's what I want to do. Part two of the Father and his family. Man's nature. When man was created, he was planned a perfect human being with endless human life. He was neither immortal nor mortal. Now the word mortal means death doomed or Satan ruled. Immortality means freedom from the dominion of mortality, incorruptible, deathless. When God created Adam, he was a perfect human being. Death had no dominion over him. He had a physical life that had the power of recuperation to the extent that he never wore out, nor was he subject to disease or death. And I suppose that this physiological law that man's physical nature renews itself once in seven years was the secret of man's perennial freshness physically. Jesus had the same kind of a physical body. He was not subject to death. Death had no authority over him until he became our sin substitute and our sin nature was laid upon him. Then he became mortal and subject to death. Man belongs to God's class. He is an eternal personality. Before he committed sin, he had dominion over all angels and demons. No being but God Almighty himself was greater. And it might be well for us to notice at this point another remarkable feature in God's plan. 
time limit. God gave to man a time limit dominion. And by accommodation, we might call it a lease of dominion. This lease of dominion is called in Daniel and in Mark the age of the Gentiles. That is the age of the nations or the age of the dominion of man. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 29 says, And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, thou son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? Luke chapter 21 and verse 24, And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. The word Gentiles means the human race, fallen man. Romans 11 and 25 says, For I would not, brethren, have you ignorant of this mystery, lest ye be wise in your own conceits, that a hardening in part hath befallen Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Revelation 12 and 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe for the earth and for the sea, because the devil is gone down unto you having great wrath, knowing that he hath but a short time. In these scriptures, we see that the demons knew that they had a time limit. That time limit is called the time of the Gentiles. This evidently means the age of man's original dominion, which was turned over to Satan. And we know that Satan is ruling today through fallen men, but thank God that lease has nearly ended and will expire at the coming of the Lord Jesus. Man's responsibility. God gave to man the ability to reproduce himself, to beget children. It happened in this wise. God, instead of creating the whole human race by a single word, created one man and one woman and said to them, I permit you to give birth to my children to rear, educate, and care for them, teaching them to love me and respond to my heart yearnings. So man's real business was to give birth to God's children. And this gives a responsibility to man that can only be measured by eternity. Man gives birth to eternal personalities, children who live as long as God lives. Man is then the custodian of God's joy. Now the nature of man's sin. This is the old problem that has confronted theologians in every generation since Calvary. What was the nature of man's original transgression? It could not have been a broken law, for there had been no law given as we understand the term from its connection with the law of Moses. Then what kind of sin was it that could compel the incarnation and the sufferings of Calvary? What was the sin that may be called man's masterstroke of misery? (laughs) Having found that man was invested with such far-reaching authority that he had an intellect of such caliber as to be the companion of deity and that he had in his hands the joy or the sorrow of God, we can understand now the nature of the sin he committed. High treason. The sin of Adam was the crime of high treason. 
God had conferred upon him the legal authority to rule the universe. This universe-wide dominion was the most sacred heritage that God could give to man. Adam turned this legal dominion into the hands of God's enemy, the devil. This sin is unpardonable. High treason has been so considered in all ages of the human. Adam's transgression was committed in the white light of absolute knowledge. He was not deceived by the devil. He understood the steps that led to this awful crime. His wife Eve was deceived, but Adam became the Benedict Arnold of eternity. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not beguiled, but the woman being beguiled hath fallen unto transgression. He knew God. He knew Satan. He knew the result of the unthinkable crime he committed, the effect of the treason. First, it was the thwarting of God's plan. Second, it was the separation of God and man. Third, it gave Satan universal dominion over God's creation. Fourth, it incurred a complete bondage of the human to the devil. Fifth, it brought a blighting curse upon the animal and the vegetable kingdom. There had been no death since the face of the earth had been renewed and prepared for man's advent. But now a blighting curse sweeps over God's fair creation. Every flower and fruit has a curse upon it. Worms, briars, and thorns abound. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17, the story is told of the earth being cursed as a result of man's sin. So bitterly was it cursed that its fruit was unfit to lay upon God's altar, as we see in Cain's offering. This hideous, withering curse changed the face of all the earth. Death and blight are now visible everywhere. The effect of the animal kingdom is more sinking. Creation was planned under the dominion of love. The whole animal creation lived in the atmosphere of love and peace. Fear and hatred were unknown. Suddenly, the whole animal creation received a new nature. There was breathed into them as by a breath of wind a spirit of hatred, of cunning, of fear, and revenge. The the lamb and the lion had skipped about and played together upon the green. Suddenly, the lion has changed. He becomes ferocious. His voice that had no no sounds but love was changed until the very woods and plains resounded with his awful war call. Fear grips the heart of the timid man's awful crime, and it's being felt by the whole animal creation. The earth is suddenly turned into a great battlefield, and down through the ages, the silent woods, streams, and deserts have become a huge cemetery. Fear and death stalk in the shadows of every night. Man's kingdom. Man suddenly becomes mortal. Man becomes death-doomed, 
Satan's servant. He's born again. He's more than a sinner. He is sin. A new nature enters into him. And it's not the nature of God, but of his enemy, the devil. A similar nature is breathed into the animal kingdom. Devilish, cruel, and malignant. Man's spirit (coughs) undergoes a change. He has become a partaker of Satan's nature, spiritual death, and he dies spiritually. He suddenly becomes a hater of God. His whole nature is rebellion toward God. He loses fellowship and legal standing with God. He loses his love and receives hatred and revenge. He loses his faith and receives hesitating, halting, and stumbling unbelief. He loses his rest, peace, and joy. He's driven from the garden with no approach to God save with bleeding sacrifice whose blood drips on the side. When God created man, he gave him the choice of eating the fruit of either the tree of life or of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. One would have united him with God, the other with the devil. One would have given him eternal life and immortality for his body, the other spiritual death and mortality for his body. Adam had the privilege of becoming God's child. He forfeits it, forfeits it and becomes the devil's. Adam's legal right to sell. Well, did Adam have a legal right to barter his dominion? Yes. Though we question that he had the moral right. This answers these age-old questions. Why has God not disposed of the devil if he has the power to do it? Why has he permitted Satan to rule the earth and cause so much misery if he is God Almighty? Adam evidently had a legal right to transfer this dominion and authority into the hands of the enemy. God has been obliged through the long period of human history to recognize Satan's legal standing and legal right and authority. And on this ground and this only can we understand the legal side of the plan of redemption. Satan's dominion. We have come to one of the most interesting features in the plan of redemption. Satan's dominion over creation. Now we have shown how Satan obtained this authority. Now let us note some facts in regard to it. The careful student of the scripture will notice the perfect justice of God. He is almighty, but he has never taken advantage of Satan. Adam had legally transferred to him the authority with which God had invested him. This authority was time limited. Had God not been absolutely just, he would have dispossessed Satan and punished men then. But instead of that, his grace makes provision for humanity's redemption, showing his love to man based upon perfect justice. We remember that when Jesus began his ministry, directly after he was baptized, he was led away by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. The devil said to him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus said unto him, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone. And then the devil led him up and showed him all the kingdom of the Hashem inhabited earth in a moment of time and this he might have done simply by pointing to the Roman eagle the badge of Romans 
world power. And the devil said to him, To thee will I give all this authority and the glory of them, for it hath been delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will I give it. If thou therefore wilt wash at me, it shall all be thine. Now Mark, Satan came to Jesus and declared to him that the authority and the glory of the inhabited earth had been delivered unto him, and that he could give it to whomsoever he willed. If the devil lied to Jesus, and Jesus did not know that he had lied, Jesus was but a man and not the incarnate Son of God, as we have believed. If the devil lied to Jesus, and Jesus knew he lied, then it was not a genuine temptation. We believe that the Bible is true, and it was bona fide temptation. If that be true, then Jesus recognized that Satan had authority and dominion over the kingdoms of the human race, authority which he could transfer at will to whomsoever he wished. This is a hideous fact to contemplate, that the human race has been under the dominion of the devil, and that his dominion is a legal dominion, and that God is unable to break it until such time as the Adamic lease so-called expires. Jesus, moreover, not only recognizes Satan's authority at the opening of his ministry, but also speaks of him in John 14 and 30 as the prince of this world. And a literal rendering would read like this. Now is the crisis of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Satan here is recognized as the political head of the human race and of the kingdoms of the world. It does not seem necessary to attempt to defend this point. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, it says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled in them that perish, in whom the God of this world or age hath blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should not dawn upon them. Satan is called the God of this world. Here he takes his position in bidding for the worship of man in competition with the Father God. Jesus plainly declares that men are either worshiping God or the devil. And Paul leads us to understand that the entire world is either worshiping God through Jesus Christ or worshiping Satan. And when we realize the extent of satanic worship in this country, Our minds are staggered. Demon worship. When we think of the mothers who are offering their children today on the altars of Satan, on the altar of the dance hall, on the altar of the house of ill fame, and on the altar of the God of gold, and of men and women who are making burnt offerings to the God of nicotine daily, it makes us shudder. It is not in India, Africa, and China alone that Satan is being worshipped. But the unhappy fact is that every land that does not worship God through Jesus Christ is a devotee of the devil. In John 8 and 44, Jesus brings another phase of this truth before our minds with awful vividness. He's contrasting two fathers, his father and the Jew's spiritual father. 
They had lost their temper with Jesus and had some very unkind things when Jesus said to them, John 8 and 44, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and standeth not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father thereof. And here we face one of the most solemn facts of the human experience. Not only a fact, but an explanation for the phenomena of sin. Man is spiritually in union with the devil. He has become a partaker of the satanic nature. For Paul tells us that we are by nature children of wrath. John tells us in this are manifest the children of God and the children of the devil. Man at the dawn of human history became a partaker of satanic nature. That nature was breathed into his spirit by the devil and man became a subject of Satan. This is the only satisfactory explanation for the power of the devil in the world. Satan is declared to be a murderer and a liar. The two outstanding characteristics of the human race are lying and murder. Deny it as much as we will. Ignore it if we can. The fact remains that deception and murder are the chief characteristics of the human race. Jesus describes as a murderer a man who hates. Hatred and revenge are deified in all great novels and dramas. Satan is not only the prince of this world, the God and spiritual father, but Paul also tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, that he has the power or authority of death. Paul tells us in Acts 26 and 18 that his commission was to go and deliver men out of true authority of Satan. John tells us that the whole world lies in the embrace of the evil one. These facts are unpleasant. No one would care to write them. Everyone would shrink from telling his dearest friend of them unless duty compelled it. Man's condition. Let us in a word sum up man's condition. First, he has become mortal, a subject of the devil. He is giving birth to children, not for God, but for the glory and joy of the devil. Second, he has become an heir to misery, pain, sickness, and death. He is a partaker of a nature that makes him an enemy of God, and since his treason, he has had no approach to God except over a bleeding sacrifice. Through a God-appointed priesthood, over dreams or visions or angelic visitations, his mind has become blinded by the devil. His nature is enmity to God and not subject to the law of God. His eyes have been blinded to the will of God. Paul sums up his case without covenant claims on God, without God, godless, without hope, hopeless, and in the world with the authority of death in Satan's hands, with no legal approach to God and no legal rights in prayer, a criminal outlawed by his own treason. Now, here are a few questions to ask. What kind of a being did God create when he created man? Number two, what scripture reveals the type of mind that Adam had. Number three, what dominion did God give to Adam and give the scriptures? Number four, what was man's most sacred responsibility? 
Now, number five, what was the nature of man's sin? Number six, what was the effect of man's treason upon creation and humanity? Number seven, what incident in the New Testament reveals Satan's legal dominion that was given to him by Adam? I am a puny part of the great whole, yes, but all animals condemned to live, all sentient Things born by the same stern law suffer like me, and like me also die. The vulture fastens on his timid prey and stabs with his bloody beak the quivering limbs. All's well, it seems for it, but in a while an eagle tears the vulture into shreds. The eagle is transfixed by shafts of man, the man prone in the dust of battlefield. Mingling his blood with dying fellow men becomes in turn the food of ravenous birds. Thus the whole world and every member groans, all born for torment and for mutual death. Voltaire. And the above reveals the dominion of spiritual death over all creation. The dominion of death. The Bible is a mystery book until we find the key that opens it. Then it ceases to be a mystery and becomes a message. There are two words that open the Bible. The two words hang on the same key ring. They are the words life and death. It is impossible to receive a coherent conception of God's message without a full understanding of these two mighty words. Sin, as we understand it today, is not the reason for redemption. It is but one of the results of a basic cause. And until we understand that basic cause, there will be no grasp either of man's condition or of God's provision for his redemption. Death has been a mystery in all ages. Science stands mute in its present, unable even to attempt an explanation. Philosophy turns poetical when it meets this dread enemy of the human. Theology has only dealt in generalities when they're attempting to explain it. That bloodhound-like foe began its thread work at the cradle of the human and has followed it down through the stream of centuries. It's not a part of the creation or a part of God's original plan. It has always been the enemy of the human. Man is a spirit. Before we can understand the nature of death, it'll be necessary to look at the nature of man for a moment. Man is a spirit and possesses a soul and has a body. His soul and spirit constitute his personality. And above this soul is he, himself, spirit. This is the real man. This spirit operates through the soul and and in turn operates through the physical body. The man and his soul live in a body. At death, the man and his soul leave that body and go to their home. It has always been difficult to realize that man is a spirit instead of a physical being. Paul is speaking to the Thessalonians and says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. And the God of peace himself sanctify you wholly. And may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved entire without blame at the coming of your Lord Jesus Christ. The real 
world powers today are spiritual. God is a spirit. Man is a spirit. Satan is a spirit. Kinds of death. There are several kinds of death mentioned in the scriptures, but we're only interested in three, spiritual, physical, and eternal, which is called the second death. The real death is that which lays hold of our spirits rather than our body. Physical death is but a manifestation of its parent. The second death is the ultimate finality of death, the home of the spiritually dead. Now, the reader will find it very difficult to think of death except in relation to the physical. Physical death is a dissolution of the physical body. In Job 18 and 13, it's called the firstborn of death. In other words, primal death is not physical, but spiritual. Spiritual death came to the earth first. It manifests itself in physical by destroying it. The physical death is but a manifestation of a law that is at work within the human called by Paul the law of sin and death. But before we take up the question as to the nature of spiritual death, it might be well for us to look at life. There are four kinds of life, vegetable life, animal life, human life, and spiritual life or eternal life. Jesus tells us in John chapter 5 and verse 26 that all life heads up in God. He is the author of all life, whether it be animal, vegetable, human, or eternal. And he has given to the different kingdoms life to fill their, to fit their spheres. In other words, life is the nature of God. Life is the substance, the being of God. God is a spirit, consequently, his life is spirit life. Satan is a spirit, but his nature is the very opposite of God. God's nature is life, and its first manifestation is love. Satan's nature. Satan's nature is death, and its first manifestation is hatred. Spiritual death then is as much a substance, a force, a fact as life, but the difference is it emanates from the devil, while life emanates from God. Satan was originally in heaven with God, one of those spirits who stood next to the throne itself, but he turned against God, and when he did this, his nature changed. It is that nature which serves as the very fountain of all that is evil, wicked, and corrupt in the human. And we can see that if all that is good, holy, and beautiful heads up in life, which emanates from God, then all that is evil and bad and corrupt heads up in spiritual death, which emanates from Satan. Death, then, has a nature as really as life is a nature. We can understand that out of God's nature flows love, joy, and peace. And out of Satan's nature comes hatred, murder, lust, and every unclean and evil force in the world. There is no solution of the human problem without an understanding of these two supernatural forces, spiritual life and spiritual death. If a man is dead in spirit, that is, if he is a partaker of the nature of the devil, then we understand that his need of eternal life. When God placed man in Eden, he had the inherent power of choice and responsibility. 
If he had not been created thus, he would have been an automaton, a machine under the direction of his creator. If this had been so, man could have brought no more joy to God than a machine could bring to its inventor. God gave man not only the power of volition, but also knowledge and wisdom beyond anything we have today. He had been brought into being to be the associate and companion of the great creator God. That in itself indicates man's mental and spiritual capacity. When he was given control of the universe, God warned him, told him that if he disobeyed, he should surely die. Or literally, in dying thou shalt die. And this statement suggests the fact that man is subject to a twofold death. The moment Adam committed high treason, he died in spirit. But he did not die physically for 930 years. And it is very noticeable that the moment man sinned, sinned, his nature underwent a complete change. This change has no parallel in nature except in that which is known as the new birth. For when one is born of God, he undergoes an instantaneous change. And this proves to us that man was actually born again when he sinned. That is, he was born of the devil. He became a partaker of such, uh, of satanic nature, just as man today becomes a partaker of divine nature when he is born of God by accepting Jesus Christ. The New Testament view of spiritual death. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 says, Therefore, as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death passed into all men, for that all sin. Through one man's sin, death entered into the world. The picture is of death standing outside a closed door. Man's sin is throwing the door open and allowing death to come in to that human. This is not physical death, as we see in the verses following, for they say that death reigned from Adam until Moses, indicating at the time of Moses that there was a cessation in part at least, of the dominion of death. We know that nothing in Moses' day kept men from dying physically. It has no reference to that, but it does have reference to another kind of death. The remainder of the chapter proves this, for in this section of Romans, Paul is contrasting spiritual death and spiritual life. That word reign, R-E-I-G-N, really means reigned as king. So we understand that death reigned as king over the human race from Adam's day until Moses'. In Moses' day, God gave to him the atonement of the blood of animals. Blood represents life and atonement means a covering. So God, through the high priesthood, gave to the Jewish nation and to the Gentile world, if they wished it, a covering of life. And through this, we understand how death dominion as a world emperor was broken. Perhaps the most graphic statement in regard to spiritual death is in the 17th verse. A little translation reads Romans 5 and 17. For if by the trespass of one, death seized the sovereignty through the one. Now here's an awful picture. Away back there in the Garden of Eden, death, that hideous monster 
seized the sovereignty, the dominion, the kingship over creation. It drove life out and brought in its own rule of desolation. Then again in the 21st verse, the same translator translates Romans 5.21 that as sin reigned as king in the realm of death, even so might grace reign as king through righteousness unto eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now here we have the truth stated clearly. Death has seized the sovereignty and God's creation is under its dominion. And we understand that sin's so prevalent today, scourging and blighting the human race, reign as king in this awful realm of spiritual death where the whole human race lives today under the cruel emperor, Satan. This is the only explanation for the present power of sin in the world. We cannot explain sin otherwise. Sin is the outgrowth of spiritual death. Spiritual death is the soil out of which all kinds of sin grow, just as spiritual life, the nature of God coming into man becomes the soil out of which all kind of good actions spring, the nature of spiritual death. It can be clearly seen now that spiritual death is the nature of the devil and that spiritual life is the nature of God. That out of spiritual death come hatred, jealousy, and murder, and that out of the nature of God comes love, forgiveness, and peace. And we can understand now the prevalence and power of sin in the world. We may legislate all we please until we change the nature of man, sin will grow and flourish. We may stop it here or there, but it will surely spring up elsewhere. And the only hope of the human is to give him a new nature. Spiritual death, then, is the nature that lies behind all sin committed. Man commits sin because his nature produces that kind of conduct. Spiritual death made man mortal. Spiritual life alone can make him immortal. And that was a sad day for the human when Satan became emperor of the universe and let loose that hideous miasma of hell's spiritual death. The power of death. What an awakening for Adam. He had been God's under ruler and king. Perfect beauty had gladdened his eyes at the rising of every sun. But now, devastation has begun. The marks of satanic dominion are manifest everywhere. Spiritual death has changed the nature of all the animal kingdom, and the discordant cries of hatred and malice are heard from wooded dale to open glade. Carcasses of insects and beasts lie rotting in the sun, and Adam, the uncrowned king of creation, grovels under the iron heel of Satan. Spiritual death becomes a hideous reality to him. His firstborn son murders the second, and he is made to feel with keenness the effect of his treason. He had not only sinned against God, but also against his unborn children. A little grandchild is born into the family, and Adam names it Enosh, which means mortal, frail, subject to death, or Satan ruled. Think of naming the first grandchild of the human race after his sin. 
Man is now united with the devil. He is an outcast, an outlaw driven from the garden with no legal ground or approach to God. He no longer responds to the call of God. He responds only to his new master. And now we understand why man is more than a transgressor, more than a lawbreaker. Man is spiritually a child of the devil. Man partakes of his father's nature. And this explains why man cannot be saved by conduct. If he is ever to be saved, it must be by someone's paying the penalty of his treason, giving him a new nature. Me can never stand in the presence of God as he is. Man is lost today, not because of what he does, but because of what he is. Man needs a new birth, that is, life from God, because he is spiritually dead. Spiritual death is universal. And he, that's Christ, shall destroy in this mountain the face of the covering that covers all people and the veil that is spread over all the nations. He shall destroy death forever. And the Lord God shall wipe off tears from all faces and the reproach of his people shall he take away from off the earth for the Lord has spoken it. Isaiah 25, 7 through 9. This covering that covers all peoples, this veil is the veil of spiritual death. Now Mark, it says here that it is a covering over all people, a veil that is spread over all nations. Well, Romans 5, verse 12 declares death passed upon all men for all sin. Matthew 4, 16 says, the nations that sit in darkness shall see a light, and they that sat in the shadow of death to them did light spring up. Romans chapter 3 and verse 9 declare that all are under sin and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's verse 23. From these scriptures, it is clear that the human race is universally under the dominion of Satan, that they have all become partakers of his nature. They have no legal right to approach God. And Satan is now their God and ruler. Jesus, in speaking of this, in John chapter 5, 24 and 25, says, He that hears my word and believes him that sent me hath eternal life and comes not into judgment, but hath passed out of death into life. Jesus is speaking of the spiritually dead who by hearing his voice may come out of the realm of death into the realm of life, out of the family of death into the family of life. In the story of the prodigal son, Jesus makes the father say, This is my son that was dead and is now alive, was lost and is found. In First John 3, 14 and 15, it says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He that loves not abides in death. Whosoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Here we have the contrast of death and life. That is the contrast of the manifestation of the nature of the devil and the nature of God. One manifests itself in hatred, the other in love. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 5. And you did he make alive when you were dead through your trespasses and sin, wherein you once walked, 
according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the powers of the air, of the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also all once lived in the lusts of your flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace have you been saved. Now, let's look critically at this section of scripture. First, we were made alive when we were dead. Second, we walked according to the prince of the powers of the air. Third, this prince is now working in the sons of disobedience, just as the Holy Spirit works in the sons of, disobedience, of obedience. Fourth, we all once lived in the lusts of our flesh and were by nature children of wrath. Fifth, but God, being rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Glory to God. Now, take this statement with Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13. You, being dead through your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you, I say, did he make alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And from these scriptures, the case is made. Man is spiritually dead under the dominion of the prince of the powers of the air. And this spirit is now working in and through man's life, carrying out the plans and purposes of this prince. All this substantiates our foregoing argument. The universal man must be born again, and the new birth is receiving the life or nature of God. And John tells us that when we receive that nature, we love our brethren. And he that does not receive this nature has hatred for his brethren. The contrast. Well, here again, death and life are contrasted. In Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 14, Paul contrasts the flesh and the spirit. Life and death in verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus made me free from the law of sin and of death. The law of sin and of death is that law that is at work today in the realm of spiritual death mentioned in the fifth chapter. And since Paul has been born again, he's free from the dominion of his former ruler. Praise God. The term flesh, <coughs> as he uses it, indicates man's condition before he's made alive or born again. The Greek word S-A-R-X, sarx, in this connection has reference to man when he is spiritually dead. The sixth verse, for the mind of the flesh is death, but the mind of the spirit is life and peace. The mind of the flesh is the mind of the natural man in the realm of spiritual death. And this mind, he says in the seventh verse, is enmity against God. And it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. <clears throat> the man who lives in the realm of spiritual death is enmity against God. He might be a college professor. He may hold the highest place in the educational world. However, 
If he's never been born from above, he is God's enemy by nature, and he cannot be a subject of God's law. However, Paul says of the believer, You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit dwelleth in you. In other words, if you have been born again, passed out of the realm of death and satanic dominion into the realm of life and the spirit's dominion, you are no longer in the flesh and should not be ruled by the senses. You remember Paul's pathetic cry in the closing of the seventh chapter of Romans. Wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me out of the body of this death? And then he cries, but I thank God through Jesus Christ, I have found my deliverance. Paul was speaking of the time when he was spiritually dead, a child of the devil, but awakened by the spirit to his bondage and also to the privilege of deliverance. We'll end right there, folks. We're out of time. God bless you. We'll see you next time. God will it. For information, materials, and to contribute, go to unleavenedbreadministries.org. Contributions only may be addressed to David Eels, Post Office Box 231616, Montgomery, Alabama, 36123. My thirsting soul, pure as water, made me whole. Let your streams of mercy flow, oh Jesus. I trust in you. Though the mountains fall into the sea, though the rivers rise, I still believe. For your mercy stands and your word is true, oh Jesus.